HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Juul, the immersion circulator for sous vide by Chef Steps. Order now at chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. This is Mike Edison, host of Art Senses of Seizures. You're listening to the Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, please visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from roughly 12 to roughly 12.45 or 1 o'clock or so on the Heritage Radio Network for Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Joined, as usual, with Nastasia the Hammer Lopez. How are you doing today, Stas? I'm good. How are you? Fine. Got Dave in the booth. Also fine. Good. Uh, call in your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. It's been a while since we've uh, all been in the uh, studio together, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, that's nice. Last week I was at uh, the Harvard giving the talk, and then the, the week before you were at the, uh, the Sweet Sweet Naples. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. So let's uh, get right into it. We have a bunch of uh, stuff to uh, catch up with today. Oh, you done any interesting cooking? No. Nothing. You're like rippity freaking doodah. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing interesting. Nothing. Yeah. See, I, did I cook anything for the Harvard lecture? No, not really, right? I don't know. Did I even serve anything at the Harvard? You know what I did do at the Harvard lecture? I showed off the uh, prototype of the centrifuge. Talked about the uh, relative uh, difficulties of uh, making a product. Anyway, all right, let's get to uh, today's questions because we have a lot. But Nastasia is... Nastasia, by the way, is getting ready. Uh, Judy from Malden sent us some cookies to taste today, so she's opening them now and, and reading the description so that we can have a comparative tasting later. Uh, ooh. So, Dave, what's that, what's that uh, signify there? Yeah, that, what is it? you opening the box. I oh, it might be a, oh, nice. <laughs> I like that. ID like in there or something. First of all, I don't think we actually uh, talked about this. Uh, Dave, did I talk about salt last week at all? You weren't here last week. The week before that? I can't, I, I can't remember that. All right, here, here, here's, yeah, here, here's the thing. I, like, this is an interesting fact that uh, came to my head, uh, that when I was kids and when you know, when people my age were kids, everybody in their house cooked with um, the cylindrical uh, boxes of iodized salt. Like We're all familiar with that cylindrical box of iodized salt, right? So as soon as I started you know, cooking, I've always 100% exclusively used kosher salt, diamond kosher salt, in fact. Uh, 
Co- and so, like, in my house, and by the way, my kids, you know, rarely do they eat out at restaurants. It's mainly stuff that we cook at home. Uh, and 100% of it is made with kosher salt. Kosher salt contains no iodine. There's no iodine. So I'm wondering if, you know, I mean, my kids, luckily, they eat uh, enough seafood, you know, that not as much as the triple six mafia with the shrimp and the iodine poisoning. That's like my favorite, my favorite, uh, like, rhyme ever of theirs. And I, I eat so many shrimp, I get iodine poisoning. I love that line. That's from sipping on some syrup. But uh, the syrup, sipping on, anyway, like, uh, point me. lean on. Yeah. Uh, the intro to that song is kind of amazing, don't you think so, Dave? I don't Absolutely. Know if we're probably not allowed to play it because we didn't buy any rights to anything. But yeah, uh, we don't have that kind of money. Uh, yeah, rhyming shrimp with, shri- I believe shrimp is rhymed with with pimp, right? They don't, there's only like uh, we have to look up look up the exact lyrics. That's not the important part. The important part is that we. Um, I wonder whether we are raising a generation of people with not enough iodine. Probably not. We're over-vitamined in everything that we, that we consume, right? I mean, as Americans, we're pretty much over-vitamined. But it's just something to consider, the fact that we have reduced the overall iodine in, uh, in our diet to the extent that we cook with kosher salt, which for me is 100%. Or malden salt, which also has, you know, not, I don't think it has a lot of iodine in all. I mean, it is sea salt, so it should have some iodine, but I use relatively little malden salt compared to kosher salt. Okay, uh, A.T. Dustin wrote in uh, showing a, a New York Times article that came out yesterday. Do you read the Times, Nastasia? No. No. There's an article uh, talking about uh, how in the 60s the sugar industry paid money to scientists to say that, it, that articles that were pointing to uh, – do a review article that said that the um, people who were saying that sugar increases uh, the, your risk of cardiovascular disease were, uh, were wrong. And that they were basically being paid by the sugar industry, and so everyone is, uh, you know, up in arms that the sugar industry would do this thing. Here's the thing, and, and you know, they had like Mary Nestle was quoted in it, uh, a guy named Stanton Glantz, who's big known for uh, was on the paper actually because it just got released in I think in JAMA, uh, and it uh, you know was very critical. Uh, he was a big tobacco anti-tobacco guy. Here's you know here's my take on it. What do you think happens? Like do you th- like what does what does what do we all think happens here in America or anywhere? A corporation makes a product, sugar. What do they want? You to buy it. What do they not want? You to think that it is unhealthy. So clearly, they're going to do whatever they can at, to, at any point to try to convince people that, uh, that their product is good, right? Mm-hmm. And that just stands to reason. And so... Uh, I think, you know, the other thing is it, it, it's, it's paying it out to look – and it is actually really sinister if you read it. Um, they weren't paid that much money. It was like $50,000 in, in today money to two scientists to, be, to publish a, a review article. By and large, um, every – here's what I think. Like, yeah, like their recommendations were the, – the, those scientists' recommendations uh, regarding um, fat because they were, they were very much uh, in kind of the – uh, Ansel Keys, fat is the bad thing and not sugar uh, thing. They probably believed what they were saying. Yeah, they took money. Yes, they gave drafts of their paper back to the sugar industry. Yes, they did not disclose it. No one disclosed stuff like that at the time. It was kind of the Wild West. Should it have been disclosed? Yes. Is it now? Should be. Uh, often is. But the, the f- fact is, is that there is a false belief among, uh, uh, among us that 
scientists are somehow dispassionate, that science, nutritional science especially, that it is somehow non-biased or should be non-biased. Every paper that I have read on nutrition is intensely biased one way or the other. So I'm sure that these sugar scientists didn't go to like, you know, Billy and Joe neutral to write a review article saying that sugar, uh, you know, did not contribute to um, cardiovascular disease, whereas uh, fat did. Uh, I'm sure they didn't choose neutral people. They probably chose people who already believe them anyway. And this is how stuff works now. Scientists have particular views. They're searched out by industry because they have uh, particular views. And then money does or doesn't change hands. But even if money doesn't change hands, the scientists still are biased towards their opinion. And then if a research, if a uh, if a corporation wants to use their research, uh, they will anyway uh, to to publicize it. So I think the whole thing is wretched. I think uh, you know th- this just points out that I think most nutrition science on either side, if there are two sides or five sides, all five sides, is all wretched and horrible because it all starts with with fundamentally, typically, the stuff that I've read, skewed data interpreted through the lens of people that have a preconceived notion of what they think the answer is. And and I think, you know, that's one of the big differences between – you know, people who do long-term predictive studies or, like, come up with scientific theories that can be easily uh, tested and confirmed and these kind of, like, large-scale, multifactorial uh, epidemiological studies. Anyway, that's my thoughts. Um, I'm sure some people are going to think I'm a jerk for saying, but that's just the truth. Bobby White wrote in... So, Bobby wrote in about White Zinn. Uh, Remember, we were talking about White Zinn when we were talking about that stuff. And he said... uh, uh, Many Sonoma wineries now make a dry rosé that is labeled as rosé without a great breakdown, but it's often just Zinfandel or an Italian field blend made predominantly out of Zinfandel. Uh, there are plenty that taste like a serious wine. My wife made four barrels of dry Zinfandel rosé at work in 2013 and pulled off a barrel for our wedding, which was excellent, though it might be a bit old at this point. I can open a bottle and give it a try and send it in if you're interested, but it should not be hard to find a decent example from Sonoma out where you live. Bobby, hey, sure, try it. I would love to taste someone's wedding wine. That'd be sweet. Taste if it's still, I mean, not sweet, dry, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, Okay. Um, Let me see. So are we ready to get to the cookie tasting, or do you want to do that? You want to take some questions, go to the break, and come back? You tell me. You're you're the hammer. What do you want to do? I don't know. All right, so let's do a couple more questions, and you decide what you want to do. Okay. David needs to get in on this, too, because there's too many. This has like too many. We're all going down together. So now we're going back to Les Claypool. Nastasia Lopez, first and only time has ever quoted Primus on the air. In fact, it's the first time I've ever heard her. You know why? Because you said that exact. Yeah, but still, like you hate whenever I quote lyrics, you hate it. Made all those cookies for for the troops, so that's stuck in my head. Remember that? Too many cookies. (laughs) Oh God. Are getting cracked in the dark. Anyway, well, like, yeah, so like, unbelievable for Nastasia too. It's burned now, in my brain. Now I have the whole thing in my head. It's burned in my brain. Too many cook, 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 cookies. So many cookies. So many cookies. All right, so we're gonna taste them. I don't think people do people listen to Pri- David. Do people listen to Primus anymore? Uh, yeah, like on the festival scene, I think. <laughs> oh my God, what's the festival scene? Is that like uh, you know, like Bonnaroo, all that oh, nonsense? I, I thought you meant like I think uh, they're, they're like a big festival band. I don't, so, when someone says festival, I think Renaissance Festival. Mm, that's where I had my 14th birthday party at a Renaissance festival. Yeah, nerd wow. alert! Nerd <laughs> alert! <laughs> now, now, that's what you need the sirens for. Like, like those Renaissance festivals are some weird business. Did you get any dates at the Renaissance festival? 
You mean like the kind that you eat? Yeah. <laughs> Bad dates. Bad dates. Another one of our favorite quotes. Yeah, like our fourth reference to that. Well, uh, like... Not today, just in life. Uh, only because you don't live at my house where it like comes up constantly. Oh. <laughs> like, like whenever my cousins are over, it's nothing but Indiana Jones references like 100% of the time. Like mixed up, like all the movies mixed up differently, uh, you know, and, and sometimes mixed up with, with other... Other stupid things that we would we do. Okay, from Alan Snow. Uh, Hope Italy was good, and the centrifuge is uh, coming along. Uh, last year, I sent a question about how to get the pectin levels down before the fermentation of apple to make Applejack. Uh, Dave mentioned that he was going to answer the question next week a couple of times, but was too busy. If there's any chance uh, an answer uh, of an answer because apples are almost here again, I'd be very grateful. Last year, I tried freezing to sediment out the pectin, uh, uh, sediment out the pectin, um, but uh, still had uh, too high of methanol levels uh, when it was done in the Applejack. It was a headache. In the end, I rotovaped the results and cut the heads off long. Um, the other question I have is, is it worth rotovaping a black trouble, truffle? I've been given one that seems pretty dried out and wondered if truffle vodka might be a way of getting the max flavor out of it uh, and a way of storing it for use in dishes. And look, it, sh- uh, it should work. Uh, like rotovaping the truffle should work. Uh, you know, I spoke to the truffle guys in Oregon who deal mainly with Oregon truffles, and they don't um, do direct seep stuff. They literally just put truffles in jars with things, but I think that's because they want to use the truffle again later. I don't think, since we eat truffles, I don't think there's going to be anything that you're going to extract out that's bad uh, into the uh, into the vodka, and then I think you know, you'll know you get most of those aromatic notes back out when you do uh, the rotovap. So, the answer is I think you'll get a lot. I mean, I don't know what in a truffle... I mean, look, most of what's interesting about a truffle is the aroma anyway, let's be honest, right? I mean, that's what that's what most of what's interesting about it. So it should, it should work. Uh, and I've read some papers online, not specifically with truffles, but on the cold, uh, on the low temperature vacuum distillation of other mushroom aromas, and it seems to work well. Right? Anyway. Uh, as for pectin, um, the call I remember getting in about pectin was trying to keep pectin uh, during the process of keeving, which is a process making cider where uh, you actually induce a pectin gel to form after the juicing procedure to trap um, nutrients. And the reason you want to trap nutrients is so that the yeast die before they have a chance to ferment out all the sugar. So it... Uh, so, so that the cider remains sweet without having to add uh, sugar back to it. And for that, you obviously want to reinforce the pectin cause. So what they typically do is they'll add a pectin methylesterase enzyme, which strengthens the pectin, let it sit for a while, and then they will, um, they will hit it with calcium chloride, you know, if you're adding stuff, if you're one of these people to add stuff, and then that'll cause that gel to really um, firm up. The gel will trap what it's going to trap. It'll float to the top, skimmed off, ferment. Uh, but your question is quite different. It seems to me what you want to do is just get rid of the uh, pectin. And for that, I would just use Pectinex Ultra SPL. I don't know, like, uh, have you tried that and it's failed? Pectinex Ultra SPL will wipe out the pectin lickety split. Like, and you can add it at the end of fermentation, which is, uh, you know, what I typically – I've done it both ways. I've added a pectin – some people had a, a pectin, a pectin X, or a, during the smashing procedure or before crushing, so that you increase the yield of juice out of the press. In fact, that's what there's a there's one called pectin X smash. It's designed literally for that to increase the yield off of apples. Uh, alternatively, I mean, you know, and if you're doing a, a press that way, you can add the enzyme early, right? I wanted uh, my problem was I was kind of it was clarifying uh, quickly. It was clarifying beforehand, so I actually let it ferment. 
uh, on with the suspended sediment and then knocked it out at the end. And for that, Pectinex uh, Ultra SPL is very good because it works in alcoholic environments. So you can add like a couple of uh, milliliters per liter at the end of your fermentation time. It should settle out uh, that you know as long as you as long as it's not actively carbonated, which is going to keep popping the stuff off the top. Once the carbonation level and the CO two has died down and fermentation is slowed, all of that stuff will settle to the bottom with your yeast, and you should be able to get get rid of almost all of the pectin. Now, if you want to kill the pectin early because you think it's producing other products in it, right? So for, I don't I don't know this. I haven't looked it up. But if there are things that are producing methanol in your uh, fermentation, then I would recommend. Um, juicing, adding the pectinex at the get-go, uh, and then racking, right? And then uh, you know, you'll lose some at the bottom, or you can do a separate ser- uh, fermentation of the kind of stuff that has the broken-down pectin in it, and then ferment the batch with no pectin in it uh, by starting at the beginning. But even without a centrifuge, you should be able, depending on the apple variety, some apple varieties don't settle very w- well at all. Uh, and some apple varieties settle quite well. But if you're doing a typical... Um, you know, uh, chumming them up in an apple grinder and, and pressing them, uh, you're getting rid of a lot of the solids anyway. So then hitting it with, uh, with, with um, the Ultra SPL after that procedure but before fermentation should work. So I don't know whether you're one of these people that um, kills the yeast and then, and then allows the wild yeast to, to do afterwards, but you at least have a day before it really starts ripping and roaring, and that's more than enough time to get the pectin to settle out. Anyway, what do you think? Okay. Good job. Anyway, you're like, don't. Nastasi's like, don't care okay um i got a chat room question if you want to sure what do you you got actually it's more like a request for uh new york restaurant recommendations from both of you oh well nastasia should give the recommendations no don't eat out anymore since when recommendations (laughs) when did you stop eating out months ago oh that was the best place to eat months ago it's probably not relevant anymore why are they closed i can't uh, i need to think what kind of restaurants are they where are they coming from uh i don't know Mm. They're, I mean, com- they're coming here, though. So, <laughs> all right. Well, nice. Well, so that's one. That's one out of the way. Um, I mean, it depends on what you want, right? How much money? Oh, Chicago. Wh- I hear, I'm getting. Oh, yeah. It depends on what kind of restaurant experience you want, really. I mean, like everyone's all. Uh, everyone's. Uh, are they still? Everyone's still hyped up about uh, Pasquale Jones. What, what kind know. of pill are you taking, Stasi? We're on the radio here. It's pep. Pep it up. Pep it up. Give some answers. Uh, it looks like he's already going to Contra, which... Oh, you should totally go there. Classic video game. I don't know about no, the No, Contra, Contra is... Uh, that's, uh, you know, my, my friends, uh, fabulous Fabian Von Hauske and uh, Jeremiah Stone. Definitely go there. Where's that? That is in the Lower East Side uh, on Orchard Street. Like down, you know, close to Delancey. Yeah, definitely go there. What kind of food? Uh, good. Oh, that kind. Yeah, no, like, so he, they have two restaurants. They have Wild Air, which is like a natural wine bar situation where, you know, you order, like, uh, tastings, uh, like, plates. And then they have, where they, they have this incredibly crispy squid thing there. And then uh, n- next door is Contra, which is their original, their flagship one, and that's more of a tasting menu. Where, not mean, like, you know, a, a, f- a flight. Like, they bring, like, they, you get what you get and you don't get upset. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, both excellent. I've been, uh, been several times. Yeah. Cool. All right. Uh, so good choice. Um, we had a question from Ryan about from St. Louis about confit. Uh, a local chef turned butcher uh, offers confit chicken leg quarters uh, to go. What's a chicken leg quarter? Do they mean the whole quarter of the back chicken, including the leg? I think that's what they mean. 
Do you think that's what they mean? I have no idea what a chicken leg quarter is. I think it's probably just the chicken leg with the thigh and that piece of the that piece of the skeleton in the back. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Like if you were to take a chicken and be like, "Hey, how about you be four pieces of chicken instead of one piece of chicken?" Like that. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so you'd get the you get the bre- two breasts, the two back leg things, and then the back which you use for soup. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm going to assume we're talking about. He mentioned they were cooked at 180 degrees Fahrenheit for 72 hours using a circulator. I am interested in replicating this at home, but have not seen any similar time and temperatures of this preparation online. Is it likely that I misheard the butcher's instructions, or do you think that this time and temperature could yield great results? Also, would you recommend salting before the cook? Thanks for your time. Show's fantastic. Ryan from St. Louis. Um, yeah, if it's going to be a confit, you got to salt it beforehand or it doesn't taste like confit, right? So I, I would always go through the classic uh, cure step with uh, herbs and salt before you do uh, your confit. And the salt, again, it's not just taste. The texture of the meat, uh, I'm pretty sure – although have I done it without any salt at all? Look, salt it. That's what it's supposed to be. That's what a confit is supposed to taste like. Modern confits have a lot lower salt level than old school confits because uh, in an old school confit, it was salt and then cooking, uh, and it was an actual preservation method. So you're looking at preserving something under grease. And the salt level in those cases needs to be high enough to prevent the growth of things like botulism. Um, there's also, you know, contrary to what people say, you know, a decent amount of evaporation, not not a lot, you know, not a boat ton, but enough because otherwise it wouldn't be bubbling now, would it? So the uh, because that's what is evaporating uh, water. The oil's not boiling anyway. So one, yes, salt. Two, I have never seen a recipe that is a hundred. When you're at 180 degrees, you're up close to normal confit temperatures anyway, like 185 somewhere in there Fahrenheit. Uh, this is in the, the 80 somewhere in the 80s in Celsius land. And uh, that is kind of normal confit temperature, and therefore I would say it only needs to cook for normal confit time on the order of several hours or you know, a little more uh, – not a little less, a little more depending uh, if you're on the lower side of that temperature. And as your temperatures drop lower, even a little bit lower, the times are going to extend longer and longer. When I start hearing things like 48, 72 hours, then I'm thinking you're cooking at much lower temperatures, down like 64 degrees uh, Celsius, which I can't convert in my head, uh, because that's the lowest thing I would confit a, a chicken at. It's still going to, you know, it's, it's, but here's the thing. I've tested lower temperature confits in the 64, 65 Celsius range, and those ones you would have to cook for, not for 72 hours, but for a long time. And I don't like them because they don't have the characteristic texture of confit. They're, they're good. They're not overcooked, uh, and they are tender, but they're not the same. My guess is that if you cook it for that long, that it's going to be a little bit mushy. I would never do it for 72 hours. I don't see any benefit. I think you're going to lose texture at that point. Uh, but that, that's me. Um, did I say enough about that? Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, should we take a, a short break and come back uh, with some cookies on cookie, cookie issues? Cookie issues? Yeah. All right. Right back. This 
episode is brought to you by Joule, the immersion circulator for sous vide by Chef Steps. If you're listening to this show, you're probably a pretty good cook. Maybe you already know that sous vide is the best way to get a kick-ass, juicy steak. And with Joule, a new sous vide tool from Chef Steps, you can do so much more. Smoky tender ribs, homemade yogurt, creme brulee, bright, crunchy pickles, vibrant purees, even smooth, creamy ice cream, all perfectly cooked every time. Joule is sleek and small enough to fit in your kitchen drawer, and it's operated by an elegant smartphone app that's been designed to remove the guesswork, get you cooking faster, and give you the information and inspiration you want when you want it. Browse Chef Steps' amazing recipes and helpful guides. Choose your perfect doneness for any meat and get notified when your food is ready. You know you'll get great results, so you can focus on sides and sauces or just pour yourself a cocktail and chill until you're ready for a delicious dinner. For more information and to order yours now, visit chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. Welcome back to a Cooking Issues. So we're doing a cookie tasting uh, from uh, Judy Malden, and she said to only unwrap them on air. So Nastasia has the mic down by the wrapper so that you can hear the fact that we are unwrapping it. Sorry, what's his name? Gritzer. Daniel Gritzer is the one that hates the noises? He made them when he was on air. What a... What a I'm saying, like, uh, you know. Okay, so there's a note on the okay, cookie. What so does it say? This one is a matcha butterscotch. Matcha and butterscotch. Do you like matcha in general stuff? Yeah. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Do you like matcha ice cream or matcha the beverage or any form of matcha? In any form. Really? Mm. I'm quite surprised because other people like matcha, so I would assume that you do not. Mm. So, Dave, you're going to come in here and yeah, sit, da- sit down for a minute? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Step away from the booth? Yeah, this thing can run itself. All right. <laughs> what do you say? He's like, I don't really need to be here. It can run itself. Okay. So, all right, so here, we'll break this into, into chunks. Now, Nastasia's had these in her apartment for a couple of weeks because things haven't worked out to the, you know, what they're supposed to. That's good. Hey, good step away from the mic when you're chewing. It's good flavor. All right, going in. It's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like ma- matcha. Uh, it works. It's kind of light on the matcha, right? Yeah. It's light on matcha, heavy on the... Heavy on the, brown sugar. Heavy on the... Well, that's the, yeah, the butterscotch thing. Okay, what's the next one? By the way, so she's making these in. So her whole, whole shtick, what is it? What's the next one, Stas? Matcha cover cocoa macadamia green mango cranberry. What? So this is a second matcha thing? Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, so her, her thing here is she's obsessed with... You know, we should, we should get her a meeting with uh, Christina Tozzi because she is obsessed with Christina Tozzi. She loves you Christina Tozzi. So she ba- basically, she bases all of these cookies on Tozzi's base recipe for, I forget which one, the blueberry cream. Blueberry cream. What, what's the next one? We have to, by the way, we have this to go through it. This might be a double. All right, we'll get one of the next ones. All right, so while, while you're unwrapping this. Green mango pine nut. What? Green mango pine nut. You should open those ones. You, you open those while I'm answering the question. We'll, we'll ta- you, you, you're unwrapping these and tasting. While you're, by the way, that is not mouth noises. That is cellophane noises. So I don't want to hear any. Dave, the Dave, our intrepid engineer, is uh, is doing that. But we can't all eat at the same time. So Dave, you take a bite of this, and you can discuss this as it happens, and I'll talk so that no one has to listen to just dead radio silence of mouth noises, which right, everybody deal. hates. All right. Well, well, uh, David's tasting these uh, cookies. Uh, and then I'll taste them. Uh, I'm going to answer a question from Nick Devlin. Uh, Nick wrote into Twitter before, what's a reasonable yield for a Justino? A Justino, by the way, is when you blend liquor and fruit. 
uh, and then uh, with uh, with uh, pectinex uh, enzyme, it destroys the pectin. You spin it out, and the centrifuge it becomes clear again. What's a reasonable yield for a Justino? I'm getting around 85% yield using dried peach at 150 grams of dried peach per liter of booze in a centrifuge at 3,300 Gs. I think we got enough of the crinkle stuff. I'm going to move that out of the microwave. Um, and I said, look, uh, you know, if you dry fruits out, it really lowers the yield. And it's because if you look at 150 grams of dried peaches, that's the equivalent probably of like 500 grams of, of peaches. So you're looking at like almost, uh, you're looking at probably at somewhere in the order of 250, 300 and something uh, grams of water loss. So the peach, as you infuse it in the liquor, is going to want to reabsorb uh, that, that water, and so it's going to make your yield consequently lower. Also, because you are, um, you're hydrating it and trying to break it down, the parts that aren't hydrated aren't going to get broken down by your pectinex enzyme that well. So I recommend always doing what's called a remouillage, and in a remouillage, what you're doing is you're re-moistening this stuff and trying to extract out some of the stuff that you missed on the, on the first go-around. And you tried that, and you said that when you blended the Remy back in, it ended up too weak. So here are my two recommendations. One, you don't want to use a lot. And when I'm saying when you're doing a remouillage, it's just a little bit of water, just enough to kind of resuspend it and make it a liquid again, add a little more enzyme, uh, and then that will hopefully break down some of the stuff that uh, didn't get broke down before and increase your yield uh, dramatically. And also, before your first spin, blend it with the Pectinex, wait a while for the stuff to rehydrate again, and then blend it again uh, to kind of re-break up what's in there and really get it broken down fine. So waiting is really going to be your friend. And uh, if you do a remouillage, just a small amount, uh, and even maybe a little bit of liquor with a little bit of water, or just a little bit of water at the get-go into the dried fruit before you do the blend to try to get some of the water level back up a little bit before you do your... um, before you do your spin, and so that's what I'm going to recommend. So, how, the, Dave? How are those? Uh, which ones did you taste? I'm not sure. Well, okay. <laughs> I just kind of ate what you handed me. All right. Well, so what we they were good. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I mean they're they're a little cold. Where where were you storing them? The, those two are in the freezer. Okay. Yeah. In her heart. <laughs> wow. That, that was the that was the green mango one. That was good. Mm-hmm. The sick? Okay. Yeah. The mango one was the one I just had. Oh, I have another cookie. Uh, bah, 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 bah. El, El Hombre. Chili Pekin, guitar chocolate. Uh, mm, no, that's not the one I had. No, you haven't had that yet. Peanut butter chips and cocoa. So it's a spicy It's a spicy chocolate. It's a spicy Reese's. It's a spicy Reese's cookie. Oh. Is it, is it in fact, a spicy Reese's cookie? Mm. It's like super spicy. Chili Pekin's a... Pekin. Is a, is a nice uh, spicy... Well, in a minute, after like I'm done talking, then he can... All right, so are you ready to talk? He's still chewing. This is the hard part about, Judy, about cookie tastings on the air. Is they take your mouth parts up, yeah. and it's impossible to talk. Is she the one that hated the wine tasting? What? I don't... Yeah, she did not like the wine tasting. That's true. Uh-huh. <laughs> all right. So, um, let me see. Uh, Brandon Hodgkins uh, wrote in... Uh, Hodgins wrote in about induction in Phoenix. Uh, I'm remodeling my... You're tasting these, and you're letting me know what's going on. Right. Yeah, yeah. All right. I'm remodeling my kitchen soon, which means I get to pick out a new cooktop. My home is not fitted for gas, so I'm going with an induction cooktop. I'll just use the pavement. You ever been in summer in Phoenix, Stas? Yeah. Nasty, right? Mm-hmm. 
about you, Dave? You ever been to? Never been. No, never been at all. No, I like Phoenix. It's really like, well, Arizona. A lot like, of old people, right? In Arizona. I mean, there's like old, the Florida of the Southwest. Uh, yeah. I mean, especially there's certain there's like retirement communities there, but um, they like if you grew up watching Bugs Bunny Roadrunner, it like really looks like that, right? Like there really are saguaro cactuses just like hanging around. So I mean, you like the desert? You're into that. I mean, it's pretty cool. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and, like, they're also, like, if you're into, like, Yosemite Sam and that kind of stuff, there are literally tumbleweeds flying around right. uh, on the streets. <laughs> like, it's, like, real. You know what I mean? Like, not in the city proper, but right. it's no joke. What cookie is that you're handing him? This is the MFing jungle. The, oh, uh, as if, like, MFing is a, presumably the, uh, the curse. Uh, Family show. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's also a matcha, matcha based. Okay. Mm. So, um, Anyway, back to back from Phoenix. This one's for you, Dave. Phoenix also like, I don't know. Like the main problem I have with Phoenix is it's in like a bowl shaped valley, and so it's easy for pollution to kind of get caught down there. But I haven't been there in over a decade, so I don't know if they've taken care of that problem. For you, Dave. Why? What is this one? This one's the one with poison in it. <laughs> this is nuclear war cheetos. Oh, all right, <laughs> all right. So let's, we'll try that. I'll say. Let me just all right, what, what was the one I just had? The MFR. Yeah, it was a little, a little sweet. So break, break off. This is nuclear war cheeto, which I'm going to try after I answer this question while Dave mm-hmm. is talking about the cookies. Okay, um, instead you could you can make your comments in a second here. Um, I do not have gas, so I'll be going induction. I have the oven separate, so I can go with a standalone cooktop. I've narrowed it down to two options, and was wondering if I could get your opinions and advice. Uh, he's looking at the Wolf CI, which does not stand for cooking issues. I believe it's probably cooktop induction. Thirty six. Uh, Five three six five, so thirty six inches wide, five burner, uh, and the Bosch NITP triple six. Now I like triple six uh, because of the triple six mafia, and of course the devil yeah, reference. Satanic, yeah. Yeah, I don't know why anyone would make a a cookware appliance with the number of the beast in it, but although maybe if it sells well, like we should uh, think of that for our stuff. We should change it from the the centrifuge to a triple uh, six thing. I don't know. Anyway. Uh, so you said Bosch uh, seems cool because of the square zones on the side. So here, let me tell you the layout because you guys can't see what the hell's going on. Uh, I can't either, but I looked at it earlier. So it turns out induction uh, induction cooktops look like they've come a long way in the in the past couple of years. The way that the um, the way that the um, Wolf is laid out is it has uh, four normal size burners on the side and then one large burner on the uh, on the on the left and one large burner on the right. Now what's cool about the Wolf is that you can run everything in called bridge mode. So you can bridge the back two burners into one burner, the front two burners into one burner, or the side burn, uh, you know, the left or the right into into one burner. And they also have what's called boost. So you can suck the power out of the um, burner next to it, which you're not using, and jack it into um, into one burner. And, and it's kind of, it's, it's fairly powerful. So like, uh, you know, the... The, the smaller ones go between 2,100 watts, which is still more powerful than any plug-in induction, and 3,000 watts in boost. And the big one goes from 2,600 watts to 3,700 watts, uh, it, which is good, it's powerful, uh, in boost. Uh, it looks good. People seem to like it. Um, what I'm curious about when you put those things in bridge mode and have two burners running and try to put like a roasting pan across it, I wonder how even the heat is because they look uh, it looks kind of like the like the elements are are round. But people seem to enjoy using it. 
Um, the other thing I'll note, and this also goes for the Bosch, is that neither of them appear to allow you to control temperature, which is kind of interesting. They all go by power ratings. And one of the nice things about um, induction is if you put proper sensors in – now, well, they won't be as accurate as the, um, the Breville one that I'm using because it – they're not going to have external, uh, you know, like pop-up sensors like the Breville one does. But you can put like a, something under the ceramic to do basic sensing of temperature. And you could also have a jack so that you could have a temperature monitor monitor it. I'm just a little surprised that they don't give you a temperature um, as well as a, as a power. But uh, maybe no one does that in a, in a cooktop because the Bosch people don't do it either. But it seems like a good unit. The Bosch unit is really, really an interesting setup because what they do is they have a large round uh, burner in the middle. And then on the left and right, they have uh, rectangular burners that are divided into two sections. So you have a, like a, like a, a, a front and back, left and right, and then a big center one. And the, the, the interesting thing is that the layout of them is, can also be bridged together so that they're one, you know, either a full left side or a full right side. Uh, you can't do what the, um, Wolf does. The Wolf allows you to do all four as one, a big 17-inch by 17-inch thing, which would be cool if you had a large cast iron griddle, let's say. Uh, but these allow you to do strips uh, along the uh, along either side. Uh, and I actually saw an exploded diagram of it, and the actual elements are kind of dual uh, oval elements, so it should probably be fairly even over the entire width of that uh, element, which is nice. Now, that gets me – the only downside I really see about the uh, Bosch is people seem to say that they don't like uh, how the controls work for it. And since you're going to be using it every day uh, for all of the cooking that you're doing, I highly suggest that you actually use it. And I'm going to say the same thing about the other one. Find someone somewhere that has a unit running that will let you run it. They, they should have a – some here in New York, they even have some places that have all of their cooktops hooked up. But – I would be very curious how even the, um, the, the Wolf one is when you're using non-round pans on those things in bridge mode. If they're even, then fan-freaking-tastic. But they draw the burner shapes round, which leads me to believe that the elements themselves are round. Uh, I'm also curious to see how even it is uh, on the Bosch. If the Bosch had excellent con- – if people really love the controllers on the Bosch, I'd probably go with the Bosch. But since people seem to really like the controls on the Wolf and not on the Bosch, then I might go for the Wolf, assuming I could get a relatively heating thing. But I would definitely say you have to use it. It's too big an investment to make to not uh, use. Yeah? All right. So, uh, Dave, you gotta, you got you to start talking about the cookies you tasted while I eat them so that uh, I'm not I'm, making I'm mouth waiting, noises. I'm waiting for you to breathe, you know? All right, I'm breathing. All right. Um, yeah, the Cheeto one, not not a fan. I'm also not a fan of Cheetos to begin with, though. So, um, yeah, I don't know. They tasted kind of stale and brittle, and that didn't really work for me. But um, I have one here called Fugazi, which is uh, getting me really excited. And I think it's like some kind of – is there mint in there? Is there a description of that one? The Fugazi? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that one's pretty good. Um, I can't find Roxanne. It's the only one I can find. You have to put on the red light. I was chewing, or I would have said it for you. Do you don't like Cheetos? No, never did. Any kind of like cheese puff snack I'm not a fan of. I just had the pekin. It's not that spicy. The spice builds at the end. Yeah, it's not spicy. It's kind of smoky, but not not like a ton of heat to it. No. All right, so Nastasia is trying to find the, the... I don't think that came here. 
Now, Roxanne now is going through my head. Here, I'm bringing the Fugazi back in here for you. What's in the Fugazi? Red Hots and Five Spices. That's in the Roxanne. In the Fugazi, it's... Oh, because the Red Hots, Red Lights? Oreo, cookies, York peppermint patties, and cardamom. You like York peppermint patties, Nastasia? Did you say cardamom? Yeah. That's what that is. There's something else in there. I couldn't tell what it was. You you do like York peppermint Mm -hmm. patties? Do you like them in the freezer or not? No. Really? Yeah. That was my favorite candy as a kid. Freezer or not freezer? None. Huh. Are both of you non-freezer candy people in general, or do you like any sort of freezer candy? I do not. Really? I mean, if it's got ice cream inside of it, then sure, but... But you don't like that super hard frozen candy bar thing? No, it's got to have a little melt to it. Well, it will melt if you chew it. Not immediately. I like how you... I like how usually I'm the immediate gratification guy, and now you're like, must be immediate melt or it's all worthless. It's just, uh, I, you know, I don't want to have something like rock solid that I'm chewing on. It's not... It's not ideal. Hmm. All right. Um... Uh, hey, Stas, can you do me a favor? Can you check our email and see if Johnny Hunter got back? Because I asked him if someone, he did asked, not. Uh, someone asked a question on smoking. And I might put that off for next week because I want to get Johnny's opinion on it. So, Martin, if you're uh, listening, uh, we're going to do your smoking question um, next week because I just want to I want to verify uh, something. Oh, wait, with, do you mean like by 1128? Did you look by 1128? I looked. I didn't look after I got on the train. No, I'm saying can you check now and see whether Johnny got back to us. Well, he sent something in 1128. I don't oh, that, yeah, that's it. All right. So, like, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll read it. I will take a break in a minute, and I'll read it. All right. Uh, okay, Andrew writes in, I'm pretty new to the show, but I've already learned so much. I was hoping to see Dave at Harvard on Monday, as I'm living in Boston right now, but I w- wasn't able to make it. Anyway, uh, I make a cocktail with honey syrup, one-to-one honey with water. By the way, one-to-one honey with water uh, is not a... Uh, it's it's that's a very light syrup. I wouldn't go one to one honey with water. Uh, you're, you're adding too much water, and I think that's part of. You, you want 640 grams of water for every kilo of honey. I'll repeat that again: 640 grams of water for every kilo of honey. And the reason is there are in every kilo of honey there is already um, 18 uh, 180 grams of water. Right? Okay. Uh, whether you care or not, that's the truth. Uh, and lavender-infused vodka. It tastes great, but in order to have the amount of honey flavor I want, I have to add a lot of honey. This makes the drink super sweet. Um, I want a clear honey flavor without the sticky, impossible-to-drink multiple sweetness. I'm also interested in the use of honey flavor in savory dishes without a huge addition of sweetness. I know you guys have answered a similar question with the distillation of floral notes of habanero peppers, and if you would answer this question before, I apologize. I have a lot of catching up to do in the podcast, but otherwise, any help would be great. Thanks so much, Andrew. Well, you could go for, like, uh, if you want honey flavor without the sweetness, you could do distillation. I'm pretty sure I used, used to do rotovap stuff of honey, although I can't really remember it. Um... You could also use uh, – you could ferment out some of the sugars and use a, a mead that's on the drier side, right? And that's going to have – although the honey notes will have changed. But you, one of the main things is, like I said, don't do uh, one, to, one to one. Do uh, 640 uh, to a kilo. And then by adding less water, the entire thing will be shorter, right? So you're, but you're still going to have the problem because to get a, whatever level of sweetness, you're going to add however much actual sugar from the honey. So the real solution to your problem, I believe, is going to be um, finding a stronger honey. So like, you know, do like a comparative honey taste and some of them are much, you know, wildly uh, more uh, assertive than others. So I don't know what you're using. You didn't mention like if you're using something that's relatively neutral, like a clover honey, uh, you know, by switching to something a little more with a little more power, I think you'll 
uh, be able to up up your up your honey game. Do you remember anything we did with uh, no, with, with honey? No, I'm sure I must have distilled it at some point, but I can't remember what the results are. Um, so do you, do you think those? The, and the thing is, the meads once they're fermented don't taste a hundred percent like honey anymore, right? Right. But they're good. You could bolster it with fresh honey, and then I think it would be like honey pow. But that's expensive, and it's probably hard for anyone who's not doesn't have a source already to find the dry mead and they're not anyway something to think about okay so uh can you do me a favor can you pull up johnny's email on your phone so that i can keep the uh, the thing up okay we got a question in from did you taste all the cookies by the way my stomach hurts i think i had too many cookies too many cookies what's the one i have in my hand that you handed me Nastasia? um i think that's the karen karen did you have Fugazi yet? Uh, maybe I have Fugazi. No, Fugazi's down here. All right, listen. Why don't we take a quick break? I'll chew on this Read Johnny's thing, and then I'll come back and answer this question. So it turns out, Martin, I am going to answer your question. Um, I I like a lot of times, like if I haven't done uh, something specifically, I like to just ask people that actually have rather than give advice out of the blue, right? So Martin writes in, uh, hi, Dave. I'm about to build myself a smoker slash dryer to make cold smoked jerky. It kind of sounds vaguely like cold smoked jerky sounds like a little, there's something vaguely sinister sounding about it. Jerky. I think jerky. I love jerky. You like jerky. Mm-hmm. That's one of the few things that you actually like. Mm-hmm. Do you like, do you like the fibers to be short or long? Short. So you like you you don't like to have to like rip your teeth off. You don't want to have to like, like, get dentures. Well, actually, guess like you you, know, you want a jerky that could be eaten with dentures. That's what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Denture friendly. Denture friendly jerky. Uh, I kind of like it in between. Anyway, uh, I want to put a humi- a humidistat and a thermostat into it as well. The thermostat is for microbial control, and the humidistat is to ensure that I can reproduce the end product consistently. Uh, and then what do you think my process should be? Should I do? Here are the choices. In chat room, you can chime in on this too, because I know you got some smokers out there. Uh, should I do a two-stage where I, one, cold smoke, and then two, dry? Or a three-stage where I, one, hot smoke for microbial, microbial control, two, cold smoke it for additional flavor, and then three, dry, or... Should I uh, do the smoking and drying in a very controlled way all at once? And can you give me tips on the design? And then you ask, what do you think of this smoke generator? And it's a German one, Borniac. So I, I don't have any experience with it. I don't need one that's used it. But I like that word, Borniac. Because uh, it sounds like a maniac smoker, right? But it's basically just a, one of those uh, auger screw feeds where it has like a low temperature uh, uh, element. And it feeds the, the stuff past the burner, creates the smoke, and has a long tube so that the smoke can cool down, which seems fine. I'm assuming you're going to put it into something like a, an old fridge or a box that you're going to make. And 
a bunch of people sell controllers for it, and it, it should be fairly straightforward uh, on that. But as for your procedure, uh, here's what I, I asked Johnny. I was like, what do you think uh, on safety? He says, there can be an E. coli risk if the meat isn't cooked. But if you do an acid wash, then you can lower it. The feds, i.e. our federal government, say you have to cook beef through. That being said, it's almost for sure safe to cold smoke and dry, uh, says Johnny Hunter coming in. I also said, look, the real issue here when you're smoking, right? So when you're making jerky, you just season it, you know, do whatever you're going to do, season it, and then you dehydrate it. But remember, it's never in an anaerobic environment. So you're never in a situation where you have to worry about um, botulism or anything like that growing. The real issue is when you're taking something uh, and putting it in an anaerobic environment, which, you know, a smoker is, can be anyway, uh, and then... Um, and then not heating it to the point where you're, you're going cold, where you're not heating it to destroy botulism. Botulism can, in fact, grow while it's still moist. And then because you're not heating it again afterwards, you wouldn't deactivate any toxins that were uh, created in the product while it was smoking. That's theory. I don't know. Right? And apparently also Johnny says there's an E. coli – well, there's obviously E. coli risk in beef to begin with. Um, so anyways – what you could do on the botulism front if you really want to keep it cold 100% is you could just nitrate it, right? And then nitrating is going to – along with the salt, that's going to prevent any botulism growth during the cold smoke phase. And then once you're drying it out, then you're drying it out in an aerobic environment. You should be fine. Anyway, those are my thoughts. Um, we have time for one more or are we uh – Yeah, that's fine. All right. So we have a question in – and this is actually – this is the one that came with a, uh, a long question alert from Shy. Because it's more of a follow-up, which, uh, which I enjoy. Um, where are we? Nastasia, my brain has been turned off. I can no longer find things. Hello, cooking issues. First thing, a while ago I asked how to prevent plums from getting bitter during baking. Because remember, uh, there, there was a problem where uh, the plums on cooking uh, turned more bitter in a plum tart. And I said that there's a bunch of people online that have that problem. Um, anyway, uh, I followed your suggestions and soaked half of the chopped plums in milk. Uh, in milk and the other soaked in water, then drained and baked them. Sadly, the experiment failed as none of the plums got bitter at all. Hmm. Well, that's not really failure because you didn't have a bitter tart. It seems like a success. Although, you know what you didn't do? You didn't do a control with no soak at all. Like maybe, uh, maybe you were leaching out some of the stuff that caused uh, the problem. So you didn't have a full control there. Anyway, um, the experiment failed as none of the plums got bitter at all, so I guess it had to do with the variety, ripeness, and growing conditions, which it almost certainly did. Almost certainly did, rather. Uh, however, the milk-soaked plums did keep a little more solid and firm. Quite interesting. Could that be the calcium in the milk? I doubt there's enough of it to make a difference. Well, I don't know. Uh, first of all, the plum is relatively acid, so... I don't know how much of the calcium is going to be available after whatever happens at the kind of acidic barrier between the plum and the milk. It's a question for someone that's actually studied that rather than someone who's just, you know, making it up as I go along, which is what I would be doing if I said something. Uh, but your question is about milk. First, I really liked brown milk solids that form when clarifying brown butter. Nastasia, are you a brown butter fan? Mm-hmm. Yeah? I feel like I used to make brown butter a lot, like, I guess because I used to make madeleines a lot. Do you like madeleines? Mm-hmm. They're a good pastry, right? need to be fresh. You know what I don't like? Everyone – remember – like, like I, mean, I think it was Danielle or someone. They used to hand you the Madeleine at the end of dinner and you would eat it right then. It was like fresh. Like you want a Madeleine to be fresh. I love a fresh Madeleine. Anyway, brown butter. But there's always uh, so little of those solids. Is it possible to add plain milk or cream to the butter in order to increase the amount of solids? Um, well, 
No. You mean no? Because you you need to make the you need to make the you could okay look you could add it maybe to the cream before you churn the butter right. Uh, but the easiest thing to do would probably be just to add milk solids to the cream before you do it because I you don't want to add a whole boat ton of water to extra water in the milk to the um, cream before you turn it to butter. But I'm sure you could increase the solids content of uh, the butter by uh, just jacking the amount of milk solids that are in it. Uh, hell, you, I mean, heck, I mean, you might even be able to just add milk solids uh, to the butter as it's cooking and just burn them. But it won't be the same. Obviously, that's cheating because they won't agglomerate the same way. Um, second, what causes uh, some labneh cheese, which is, I guess, the same as Greek yogurt. You like Greek yogurt, Seth? Yep. Hmm. You ever go to the Greek yogurt place that's near your house where they make it and it's like super duper thick? Those guys who are like some Turkish stuff and some Greek stuff? No. So good. They make really good stuff, and they have really good terra masalata. That's like the best terra masalata I've ever had in my life. For those of you, terra masalata is that Greek thing with like the with like the fish eggs in it. It's kind of creamy, and the stuff that they sell on the supermarket shelves is like rubbish, garbage compared to uh, like the re- real deal stuff that uh, is made fresh. So if you're in New York, and the international if the international grocery is still in business, are they still in business? Do you ever walk by there anymore? I don't walk by there anymore. Anyway, on Ninth Avenue, best tiramisu I've ever had in my life. They also make their own batarga. Do you like batarga? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, sorry, back to the the question because I know we're on our way out. Uh, second, uh, what causes some labneh cheese to be pleasantly bitter? Now, I've never noticed bitterness in uh, strained yogurt products like Greek yogurt. You ever notice it? No. Any bitterness? No. I've never noticed it. Uh, this is not a flavor I've noticed in other sour milk products, but is similar to that found in some aged cheeses. From uh, what I've read, this is related to protein breakdown. I would like to be able to induce it when I make my own strained yogurt. Well... Uh, again, I haven't tasted, so I can't really say. One thing I can say is that in situations where you're removing a lot, a lot, a lot of the water, uh, and the denser it gets, the more whey you're removing. And whey is inherently sweet because whey has uh, more lactose in it. And so maybe what you're noticing is just a reduction in sweetness, which should pump up the sourness because there's going to be more sour solids there. But also maybe that you're picking up on some flavor that's being masked by the lactose. That's my only guess, and it's just a guess. And lastly, for Nastasia on the way out, one more thing. If I remember correctly, Nastasia should be back from Naples. I plan to visit there in a couple of months and would appreciate hearing about your trip. Anything? Wasn't worth it. Don't go. Wow. Nastasia in a, a – really? You, 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 didn't, didn't like Naples? What other cities were you there on that trip? Uh, none, that, none that I would recommend. Wow. Normally, an Italophile people, but for some reason... Not a good trip. Nastasia... Well, you said a bad... Okay, Nastasia had a bad trip. I have been on Nastasia... Been with Nastasia on bad trips, people, and she will judge a whole city by whether she had a good time on a particular trip, and it's just who she happened to be sitting next. So, Naples, don't take it personally. Cooking issues. for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. 
You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.